Welcome all. Welcome again to City Life on this fine Easter weekend. Can we give it up one more time for Demetria as well? Thank you. I just want to thank her profusely for being here tonight. And I know a lot of you guys have been loving on my wife on social media. She's so bummed she couldn't be here. So thank you for all your messages, all the Facebook posts, just saying you miss her because she really wanted to be here. But she's highly contagious, so y'all can praise the Lord. She's not here. But uh, it's nice having Dimitri in the house. Maybe some of y'all are like, why is the Easter bunny in the house, right? Why is he here? What's going on with that? I thought this was a church service. Well, from the perspective of a, a five-year-old, and I think there were some five-year-olds that were terrified of the Easter bunny when he came in. But uh, this is the perspective of a five-year-old is why they're are rabbits on Easter. And it's a, just a short story. It says it was the Sunday before Good Friday, Palm Sunday, and we were going through Matthew 21, the triumphal entry, talking about the excited and warm welcome Jesus was receiving as he entered Jerusalem and what Hosanna meant. I made the comment that in five days' time, the crowd would be shouting something very different, namely, crucify him, crucify him. Our son, who was five years old at the time, was shaking his head as we talked about that part. Then he said, yeah, they really loved rabbits more than Jesus. My wife and I looked at each other with confused looks on our faces. Then I asked, what do you mean? He said, we just learned about it this morning in our class. When the ruler guy brought Jesus out to the crowd, he asked if they wanted him to release Jesus or the rabbits. The people screamed, release the rabbits, release the rabbits. So the ruler guy released the rabbits rather than Jesus because they loved the rabbits more. And that's why we have Easter bunnies. So... Now you know, knowing is half the battle. But tonight, we are not spending our time on the Easter Bunny. We're spending our time on Jesus Christ. And we're going to be in John chapter 20. So if you've got a Bible with you, you can turn there. If you've got the version app, you can swipe there. And if you don't have either, you can check under your seats. There's Bibles there as well. It's what I love about meeting here at Faith Lutheran. But you can turn to John 20. And as you do that, if you're taking notes, the sermon tonight is simply called Saturday. And while you're turning there, I can tell you this week... I was at the Newport News Police Station getting my prints and paperwork done. One of those wrong time, wrong place type of things. Actually, it was part of the adoption process. Steph and I, we had to update our, our fingerprints often. Yeah, I had to update it quite often, which is funny to me because my fingerprints don't change. I'm not mystique from the X-Men. I can't shapeshift. My fingerprints are always the same, but we keep having to update them. But the process itself is is so interesting. They don't use ink anymore. They use these little screens. You press your finger down and it shows up on the computer screen. 21st century, right? But it's so interesting to watch because as you press your print down, each one is unique. And it's humbling to think that over 7 billion people on the planet all have 10 unique fingerprints. And God knows each one of those. God knows every star in the sky, knows them by name, knows the number of sand on the seashore, knows every one of those 7 billion people how much hair is on their head, how many hairs are on their head. But fingerprints, the different designs of your fingerprints, they develop in the womb, and they're connected to your brain. This connection was discovered when in rare instances a baby would be born without a brain, and they found that they didn't have fingerprints. So researchers say they found a link to see what areas of your brain are dominant and active, how you're wired, how you learn, how you process the world, all by looking at your fingerprint. Whether that all checks out, I don't know. They're smarter than me. But God doesn't just know your fingerprints. He knows the mind that shaped them. He knows your plans. He knows your dreams. He knows your doubts and your discouragement. He knows every detail of everything you walk in, and he cares. I want to tell you tonight, he is both infinitely powerful, which we see on Easter, but then he's also profoundly intimate. Pastor Matt Chandler was preaching once. Uh, he pastors in Texas. I was podcasting. He was preaching on the Our Father, the prayer, and he talked about this phrase, that it shows that God is infinitely powerful and yet profoundly intimate. 
And as I was reading through John 20, preparing for this sermon, I just got that impression again and again that in the Easter story, we see that God is infinitely powerful and profoundly intimate. And if you question his infinite power, all you have to do is look at the swagger of the resurrected Jesus, especially in 1 Corinthians 15. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 23 through 26, it says, There is an order to this resurrection. Christ was raised as the first of the harvest. Then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. And that, after that, the end will come, when he will turn the kingdom over to God the Father, having destroyed every ruler and authority and power. For Christ must reign until he humbles all his enemies beneath his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And it goes on to say in verse 54 through 55, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? So what are some things that you fear in life? Phobias, quirky things. Steph, she's not here. Throw her under the bus. She's afraid of clowns. The rabbit in this rabbit suit might have made her cry too. And spiders. Denise knows her well. So this trip to the DR we're going on next weekend, it's going to be terrifying for her. There are spiders all over our living space. So she's going to be freaking out. But what are some things you're afraid of? Phobias. Small spaces. Claustrophobia. Yep. Snakes. Indiana Jones. Beetles. What were you saying, Sarah? Bees. Lots of insects. Yep. Anybody else? Kate, you throwing your wife under the bus? Caitlin, what are you afraid of? Wasps. Yep. David Godwin, if he podcasts this, he's afraid of anything with wings that flies. He's our youth pastor in Newport News. Birds, anything that flies, he's not cool with. But in the Bible, it talks about the fear of God. And that the fear of God is healthy. It even says that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And I would say that the fear of God is also the beginning of courage. Because when you fear God so much that you don't want to disobey him, you'll face the den of lions. You'll face the fiery furnace. You'll face the Goliath because you would rather serve God and die and be with him than disobey him. See, the more foes you can beat, the less I want to be on your bad side. Take any MMA fighter signed to the UFC. I want no piece of them. The moment they would give me a leg kick or a foot stomp, like I would be finding something to tap saying, all right, I'm done. I'm not going to be able to walk for a week. But the guy with the belt... I've got an even healthier fear of him because apparently he can beat everybody else. Yet every one of those guys will die. I'm not being morbid, but it's a fact. There's two things you can't avoid, right? Death and taxes. Had to file mine last weekend. But everyone will tell you, you can't beat death. All human biographies, they end in death. Every other prophet, every other religion, Buddha, Muhammad, all these pharaohs, all these Caesars that have set themselves up as deity-like figures, they all ended up dying. Except Jesus said, sorry, death, no dice. How powerful are you when you can say that to death? That, it was like David, he beheaded Goliath with his own sword, right? That's very boss-like. And, and Jesus did the same thing. He beat death with death. He beat the enemy with his most powerful weapon, the wages of sin. He beat him with death, like a boss. But believing in God, you can believe in what's called deism. Deism is this thought that an all-powerful, infinite God, he created, he started the engine, and then he walked away to let it run. He's not intimately acquainted with us. He doesn't really care about what we go through or what's going on on earth. You know, I think even some Christians can live with a a low-key deism where we think, you know, sin was an issue, so God sent Jesus to fix it, but he's still not intimately involved or interested in me, in my issues, in my problems, in, in my life. But God didn't just show himself infinitely powerful. Again, Jesus shows that he's profoundly intimate. Because Jesus would have came, died, went to the grave 
for you and you alone. Did you know it says in John 14, 8, that he would not leave his followers desolate. He wasn't trying to just ditch them and leave them behind and go hang out in heaven. But can you imagine being his disciples on that Saturday? You know, maybe it feels odd being in church on a Saturday night on Easter weekend instead of Sunday morning. But pause, reflect. There's something profound to be found in this moment. Because between Good Friday when he died on the cross and Resurrection Sunday when he rose from the grave, there was a whole day that we don't give a whole lot of attention to. What do you think the disciples were feeling the Saturday after Good Friday? Discouragement, devastation, despair, humiliation, even guilt. Three feelings we'll talk about tonight, grief, doubt, guilt. Why couldn't Jesus die for like a few hours instead of a few days, right? Roll this, as soon as the stones roll in place, pow, some big explosion, and he's out. I know it played out the way it did for many reasons, but I do think it's because Jesus knew that until his ultimate second coming, we'd be living in a, a spiritual Saturday of sorts. This already, but not yet. Sometimes that could be described as in the messy middle. But the promise has come, right, to us that Jesus beat death and we all will rise from the dead. The promise has come that Jesus will return. The promise has come that death is beaten. But if death's been destroyed, you could pose the question, the legitimate question, how come we still die? You know, if he beat death, death seems to be doing pretty well. But again, we live in many ways in a spiritual Sunday. Whole reason my wife's here tonight is she gets chronic migraines. And she had that combined with the flu, had to go to the ER. They were testing for all kinds of stuff. She deals with chronic pain. Yet there's the promise of a new body because she lives in Saturday. We have the promise that we'll see that person that we, we lost. She lost a cousin very recently. We have the promise that we'll see her again, but not yet because we live on Saturday. We have the promise that Jesus beats sin, and yet sin so often sticks around for guerrilla warfare because we live in Saturday. We live in this time of already but not yet up until Jesus returns. It's our Saturday. And there will be times of grief. There will be times of doubt. There may even be times of guilt. And I want to tell you tonight that on the Saturday before Easter, Jesus spent Saturday seemingly gone in the grave so that we will never have to spend our Saturday alone. That he didn't just beat the grave to show he was infinitely powerful. He beat the grave so that he could be profoundly intimate with us in every season of our life. In seasons of grief, in seasons of doubt, even in seasons of guilt. You know, modern Western minds, they hear about the resurrection and they want material proof. But John in his gospel account, he wasn't interested in that. All throughout John, we see these descriptions of, of Jesus' deeply personal, intimate, and firsthand experiences of him. And it's the same in his resurrection account. John wants to show us what it means for us to have a transformed relationship with the resurrected Lord in three different seasons of our Saturdays. In grief, in doubt, and in guilt. So first tonight as we're in John 20, I want to turn to Mary and her place of grief. You know, just this past week. It was the terror attack in Brussels. And I realized every time one of these tragedies happens, how, just how numb I've become. Because I should be outraged. I should be emotional. I should be troubled. But it's become so widespread and so commonplace that it's almost an afterthought. It's almost like I've become numb to it until the suffering comes and knocks on your door. Right? And a question that even we have as believers is where is God in my grief? To be real honest, the real issue for many of us is if God is infinitely powerful, if he is almighty, then he has a lot of explaining to do about certain events and seasons of our lives. If God is almighty, he's infinitely powerful, intensely personal, where was he when that happened? 
Why didn't he deliver me from evil on that day? Where was he in that event? Someone help me understand how this could possibly happen if God is good. And it's a legit bone to pick. It's one we find in the Bible, especially in the Psalms. Two-thirds of the Psalms are Psalms of lament, trying to find God in our pain and our grief. Psalm 22 says, why are you so far away when I groan for help? Every day I call to you, my God, but you do not answer. Every night I lift my voice, but I find no relief. Anybody able to say, I feel that? I've been there? You know, Eugene Peterson, the guy who translated the message version, he taught a class on the Psalms in a college. And one of his students said about the class, he said, I love the course, but I hated the homework. Peterson required us to go outdoors, preferably in the deep forest around the Vancouver campus, and yell aloud five psalms every day, as if hurling them to the heavens. Why? Because, again, two-thirds of the psalms, they're psalms of lament, cries for God in our pain and in our grief. Because hurting with hope still hurts. But watch this. Look who quoted Psalm 22 in those feelings of grief. The first words of Psalm 22 are, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus quotes this same cross, the same psalm from the cross. See, our infinitely powerful God showed solidarity with us in our grief in the most profoundly intimate way possible. Emmanuel, God with us, joined with our species in a world full of violence and oppression under Roman rule, ultimately dying on a cross. See, Easter redefines grief in light of a new reality. God entered into our suffering to share it with us. And in carrying his cross shows that he wants to carry us through it. And Mary, she shows us the impact of a transformed relationship with a risen Lord on our grief. Grief is natural. God doesn't ask us to remove it. But he asks us to let him intimately enter into it with us. To be Emmanuel in our seasons of grief. In pain and suffering and tragedy. You see the news turn to pastors and priests and religious leaders again and again. Why? Because those without hope, those without a belief in God, they won't have a, an answer we're looking for. They can't offer a response consistent with their beliefs. The answer of those that believe that we're here by chance would simply say, why are you shocked and upset? What else would you expect from an impersonal universe of random indifference? But Viktor Frankl, he's a survivor of the Holocaust. He wrote an account of how he survived. He wrote an account of his stubborn hope throughout all of his experiences. And he said, despair is suffering without meaning. But we feel pain. We feel loss. We know that those lost in tragedy have meaning. You look after 9-11, they listed every single one of those thousands of people that died. New York Times listed every one of them in obituaries. We know that they have meaning. We feel grief all too well. But the resurrection redefines grief in light of a new reality. It gives grief new hope-filled meaning. That Jesus has turned out the darkness of death and ushered in the light of his glory. We just need to pray that God will dilate the pupils of our soul so that even in dark seasons, we can see the light. We can see his presence. We can see God with us, even in our suffering. Because suffering and grief, it's not an obstacle to being used by God. Often it's an opportunity. You know, you look at Mary. You read, we're going to read John 20. We'll read, I'll skip around, but it's 1 through 18. It says, early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. She ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. She said, they've taken the Lord's body out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. So then skipping to verse 11, it says, Mary was standing outside the tomb crying, and she wept. She stooped and looked in. 
She saw two white-robed angels, one sitting at the head and the other at the foot of the place where the body of Jesus had been lying. Dear woman, why are you crying? The angels asked her. Because they have taken away my Lord, she replied, and I don't know where they have put him. She turned to leave and saw someone standing there. It was Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. Dear woman, why are you crying? Jesus asked her. Who are you looking for? She thought he was the gardener. Sir, she said, if you have taken him away, please tell me where you have put him and I will go and get him. Mary, Jesus said. She turned to him and cried out, Rabbi, which is Hebrew for teacher. Don't cling to me, Jesus said, for I haven't yet ascended to the Father. But go find my brothers and tell them I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene found the disciples and told them, I have seen the Lord. Then she gave them this message. And when you look at the Gospels, you see that Mary remained until the very end of the crucifixion to watch, to pray, to grieve. And in Mark 15, it says she carefully watched where she laid the body because she planned to give him a burial of one who was loved. And when that was removed from her, this final expression of love for her master, even that sad consolation of the burial being taken from her, can you imagine her grief? It's powerful, though, this first person that Jesus reveals, reveals himself to as a woman because it affirmed the value of women. It affirmed the witness of women in a culture and a time where they didn't have it. But she, she doesn't seem to recognize the angels talking to her. It's kind of funny. Like if an angel talked to me, I might forget about everything that's going on and flip out. But she's so focused on this body being gone. She probably was crying. There was probably a veil of tears. She was just so focused on the problem at hand. And Jesus talks to her. She doesn't recognize him because, again, she's so focused in her grief. But Jesus saw her grief, asked the reason for it. He says, who is it that you were looking for? Her mind was on the problem. Her mind was on the body. But when it shifted to the person of Jesus, solace was found. It's because the reality of his resurrection dwarves all the riddles that can just haunt us. The glory of his resurrection bathes the objects of our grief in a new reality. Christianity doesn't remove grief and suffering, but it redefines it in light of a new reality. There's a great book by Philip Yancey. It says, The Question That Never Goes Away. It's a book about suffering. But I want to read a, a short passage from there. It says, 2,000 years later, we live out our days as if on Holy Saturday, the in-between day. We look back on Good Friday, and it's clear, it's clear sign that no suffering is irredeemable. We look ahead with unrequited longing for a creation made new. Suspended in the meantime, we get not a remedy for suffering but a use for it, a pattern of meaning. As Terry Waite said, after being released from four years captivity as a hostage in Lebanon, I have been determined in captivity, am still determined to convert this experience into something that will be useful and good for other people. I think that's the best way to approach suffering. It seems to me that Christianity doesn't in any way lessen suffering. What it does is enable you to take it, to face it, to work through it, and eventually to convert it. See, Easter didn't remove suffering didn't remove grief, but it helps us through it, gives us meaning. There's glory at the end. Death is no longer a period. It's a comma. Jesus got Mary's attention by saying her name. I think he would do the same for some of you tonight. He knows you intimately by name. He knows your grief. He knows your troubles. He knows what you're going through. And he's asking, let me be Emmanuel in your grief. So tonight, we're not even going to wait for an altar with the worship band up here, but if you're here, come on, can we just bow our heads and close our eyes? And if you're here and you're struggling with the grief, the idea of suffering, you're struggling with troubles, and you want God to, to meet you in your grief, 
experience him even in those seasons of troubles, then I want to pray for you just right now. And if that's you, just lift up your hand. And God, I pray, God, for each person here with their hand lifted, I thank you that you know them by name. God, I thank you that even with hope, that even you saw that it can still hurt. We're thankful that Jesus showed above all else that he wants to join us in our grief. Join us in our Saturday. We thank you that it was his mission statement that said, God has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. God has sent me to comfort all who mourn, provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. God, in our grief, in our dark and cloudy Saturday, we ask that, again, you would dilate the pupils of our soul. God, to see your presence with us, even in the darkest times. And help us to remember how Easter impacts our Saturdays. Be Emmanuel, God, with us, even in our grief. God, give us a hope and a future. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, sometimes the only way I know how to minister to my own heart in a troubled time is to think about how I'll look at it 10,000 years from now. Right? My problem is one of perspective. I don't always know what God's up to. I don't always know his plans because his thoughts are higher than my thoughts. His ways are higher than my ways. My dilemma is one of perspective. But when I think about the fact that God is almighty and he's sovereign, and then on the second hand, he's, he loves me. He works all things for my good. I can find some semblance of peace. But maybe the questions, they cripple you. So I want to talk as well of the second encounter we see after Easter, and it's with Thomas. Thomas was in a place of doubt. So my wife is re-watching The Office on Netflix. I mean, you guys watch The Office all the way through. I'm working on it. Never done that. So I don't even know. Like, like there's a, a guy, Jim. His coworker, Andy, had a nickname for him, Big Tuna. I found this out the other day. And Jim says, I bought a tuna sandwich one day, and he calls me Big Tuna. Just a one-time event called Big Tuna. But that's a historical nickname as well. There was Tony Big Tuna Accardo, a prolific Chicago mobster, right? However, he caught a Big Tuna one day, and somehow, some way, that name stuck. Apparently, catching one big fish once outweighs an entire life of crime when it comes to your nickname. So it's like one moment defines you, like Justin once ate 45 Chick-fil-A chicken nuggets white. It's happened. I'll give you guys a number who beat me. He ate 52. But enter Thomas, right? Doubting Thomas, defined by a moment of doubt, legitimate doubt. But in my opinion, Thomas gets a, a bad rap. Because what was the response of the other 11 disciples when Mary told them about the empty tomb? It says in Mark 16, 10 through 11, when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they didn't believe. They too didn't believe until they saw Jesus for themselves. But here's the account of Thomas. The account of Thomas starts in verse 24. It says, one of the 12 disciples, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, was not with the others when Jesus came. They told him, we have seen the Lord. But he replied, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands, put my fingers into them, and place my hand into the wounds on his side. It says, eight days later, the disciples were together again. This time Thomas was with them. The doors were locked, but suddenly as before, Jesus was standing among them. Peace be with you, he said. Because when somebody just pops in a room with the doors locked, you're going to freak out. Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands. Put your hand into the wound of my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. My Lord and my God, Thomas exclaimed. Then Jesus told him, you believe because you have seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. Again, we knock Thomas because he's so easy to point out. He was alone in his doubts. 
But all the other disciples didn't believe until they saw Jesus first as well. But I also believe we knock him too much because sometimes we can knock doubt too much. Sometimes I think we think the most mature Christians are the ones that can keep doubt at arm's length, who, quote, unquote, know what they believe. But there's a, there's a level of knowing that we certainly should all have. But doubt is normal. Doubt is to be expected in a journey following a God who won't and can't be boxed in. Certitude is awfully hard when you follow a God whose ways and thoughts are higher than my ways and my thoughts. Sometimes we can fear doubt like it's a roadblock that's going to keep us from following him. Or as if we, if we engage it, we're going to leave God behind. But sometimes those questions help us to leave the limits we've put on God behind. God knows this. It's why when God responded to people that struggle with doubt or belief, it was positive multiple times. You see the man who came to Jesus and said, help my unbelief. Basically, help me with my doubts. And Jesus responds to his honest admission by blessing him and healing his son. He responded to Thomas's request and didn't say, hey, let go of all your doubts. Rather, he responded to his request with evidence. But, but then Jesus blessed those who would go on to believe without the privilege that Thomas had. But see, doubt isn't a bad thing. Doubt doesn't make you a bad Christian. Timothy Keller, a great apologist, a great guy who argues for faith in Jesus Christ, says a faith without some doubts is like a human body without any antibodies in it. Addressing your doubts with the truth God gives you makes your faith stronger, not weaker. But outside of God, outside of the reality of Jesus, sometimes those doubts can wreck us. Stephen Prothero, an author and a professor of religion at Boston University, says even if religion makes no sense to you, you need to make sense of religion to make sense of the world. This idea that to understand the human condition and how it affects our world, a truth needs to be found. And Easter redefines doubt in light of a new reality. Thomas shows the impact that a transformed relationship with a risen Lord can have on our doubt. Again, doubt is natural. God doesn't shame us for having it. He doesn't ask us to remove it. He asks us to let him enter into it with us. Our resurrected Lord impacting our doubts. See, Easter plays a huge part in my doubts. Either Jesus is real and there was an empty tomb or there wasn't. If the tomb is empty, then I'm fully committed. If the tomb is empty, then I'm all in. Because I can fix my eyes on Jesus with who the Bible says is the author and perfecter of my faith. I might, might not understand every detail of what I believe according to Old Testament and New Testament. I might not understand why everything happens or how God's working it all out for good or when things will turn around. But I know who I believe in. I believe in Jesus Christ who went to the cross and beat death. If, if he calls himself the way, the truth, and the life, then I'm following him. And again, when I say doubt is good, I'm not saying feed your doubts. I'm saying let your doubts feed off Jesus. Engage your doubts. Take them to the cross. We won't understand all things, but truth and faith remains when reason and rhyme leaves us. Faith is at its brightest when intuitively sometimes we're in the darkness. You know, Mother Teresa is somebody, when she was alive, we just considered a walking saint, right? And concerning her sainthood in a letter and some correspondence, she said, if I ever become a saint, I will surely be one of darkness. Because for her, she felt such a clear call on her life to go and minister the way she did. But when she was doing it, she didn't always feel the presence of God. She wasn't always certain. <laughs> but you know what? Even though her feeling of God's presence might have wavered, her trust never did. She trusted enough to keep obeying in the hardest circumstances. See, faith doesn't mean you have all the answers now. Faith doesn't outline every detail of your future before you walk into it. 
Faith means you're doing the right thing and obeying God's commands, even when your flesh is still trying to figure it out. You know, Martin Luther King Jr. said faith is like taking the first step when you still don't see the whole staircase. Because God is good and we are a man, sometimes what he does seems to us like a lot of stuff in Star Trek seems to Spock. Highly illogical. But another one of my favorite authors, Mark Batterson, there's this great quote from one of his books that says, faith isn't logical. But it isn't illogical either. Faith is theological. Think theology. It just adds God into the equation. Faith is not mindless ignorance. It simply refuses to limit God to the logical constraints of the left brain. Faith is not limiting God to what I think can be done. Logic questions God. Faith questions assumptions. And at the end of the day, faith is trusting God more than you trust your own assumptions. You must come to the conclusion that even if you don't understand everything in the Bible, that you're still going to take it as God's true and living word. I don't ever want to let what I don't understand keep me from obeying and living according to what I do understand, what I do know to be true. So there have been times in my life where I've struggled with doubt, where I've struggled with big questions, and I start reading apologetics, and I start reading opposing points of view, and I, there are books to no end, like it says in Ecclesiastes. But if you're here tonight and you struggle with doubt, if you're here tonight and, and the things you don't understand are, are holding you back from following the things you do understand and you know God's called you to, then even right now I want to pray for you. Come on, if we, again, we could have everybody close our heads and cl- close our heads, bow our heads, close our eyes. If that's you and you're here tonight, you struggle with doubt and you find yourself holding back because you don't understand everything, then I just want to pray for you and my hands up for this one too. You know, Psalm 13 the psalmist says, how long must I wrestle with my thoughts? God, we recognize that we wrestle with doubt only because there's a faith to engage it. And God, just like they asked in Scripture, give us faith more and more. Help our faith, not our flesh, to determine our obedience. Jesus, if Easter is true, you rose from the grave. <laughs> then come on, you endorse the Old Testament. You endorse the New Testament. We know that we can trust you. You are the way, the truth, the life. We want to follow you, Jesus. God, help what we don't understand, not to get in the way of following you in all the ways we know to be true. God, there are so many plans, so many purposes, so many destinies in this room. God, don't let doubts hold us back. God, we want to entertain our doubts, but bring them to Jesus. Let them feed off the truth of God's word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Then lastly, Peter was in a place of guilt. You can read John 21 Verses 7 through 14. We'll turn there now. The disciples, it's after Easter Sunday, after the resurrection, they're out fishing. It says in verse 7 that the disciple Jesus loved, I love that John refers to himself that way. Hopefully, like, you refer to yourself that way. You are Justin, who Jesus loved. He said to Peter, it's the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that, it was the Lord. He put on his tunic, for he had stripped for work, jumped into the water, and headed to shore. The others stayed with the boat and pulled the loaded net to the shore, for they were only about 100 yards from shore. When they got there, they found breakfast waiting for them, fish cooking over a charcoal fire and some bread. Jesus probably could cook, man. Bring some of the fish you've just got in the flesh. Bring some of the fish you've just caught, Jesus said. So Simon Peter went aboard and dragged the net to the shore. There were 153 large fish, and yet the net hadn't torn. Now come and have some breakfast, Jesus said. None of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. 
Then Jesus served them the bread and the fish. This was the third time Jesus had appeared to his disciples since he had been raised from the dead. After breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied. You know I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. Jesus repeated the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said. You know I love you. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus said. A third time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the question a third time. He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, then, then feed my sheep. You know, we see through Scripture that, that Peter was a leader. Peter had initiative. Jesus even here is saying, hey, lead my sheep in many different ways. When he says, bring the fish in, Peter jumps in to do it. He had initiative. He asked more questions in the Gospels than all the other disciples combined. He was often the one that answered the questions that Jesus posed. Peter also seized the moment. We like to knock Peter for sinking when he was walking on water. There's all these sermon illustrations. We're like, this is why he sunk. And we forget that where he was walking. He was walking on water because he took initiative. Nobody else was. But he got involved. He took initiative. He also was brash. He plowed ahead. Next to walking on water, what he's probably remembered for most is his three denials of Jesus. Peter, in my opinion, though, like Thomas, can get a bum rap. Because where were all the other disciples? They had denied him with their actions. You know, Peter and John went further to follow Christ than any other disciples. But denied Jesus, Peter did, not just once, but three times. You know, again, Steph and I, we're going on this trip to the Dominican Republic next week. We, we've sent out teams twice. This is our third time down there. We're trying to build latrines for every home in the village. We're uh, working towards building a water filtration system for this village, La Guasara, in the Dominican Republic. And uh, we work hard. <laughs> and then at night, I can sleep through just about anything. The snores, the dogs barking outside. But at about 1.45 in the morning, the roosters start crowing. This isn't Disney. It's not Looney Tunes where they just crow when the sun rises. 1.30, 2.15, 3.33, 5 in the morning. Roosters crowing all night long. Totally random. Totally random. They, yeah. But for Peter, the rooster crowing, it wasn't random. It was the awful sound of Christ's prediction fulfilled. When he denied Christ three times and the rooster crowed, how do you think he responded to a rooster crowing the rest of his life? <laughs> but here's the thing. I don't think Jesus predicted Peter's denials just to put him through some unfair trial. Before Jesus predicted his denials, Jesus predicted he would never do such a thing. The kind of bold statement that Peter was known for. But Jesus was showing us that even after the most sincere statements of faith, we'll fail. We aren't perfect. We're going to fail. That's why Jesus came to die on the cross. He had to because we're not perfect. We'll fail. Our failures will produce guilt. But because Jesus rose from the grave, conquered sin, conquered death, guilt isn't the end. Guilt is swallowed by grace. Jesus was saying, look, you'll stumble. You'll fail. He says, pursue holiness, but know you'll need grace. And sometimes the biggest issue isn't not falling, but knowing what to do when you fail. Never let your faith fail simply because you do. Let it deflate your ego. <laughs> let it annihilate your self-confidence. Let it suffer your pride. Let it lead you to confession. But never let your faith in God fail simply because you do. Confess but never concede. Never forfeit your faith. Never yield. 
Easter shines a new light on guilt. Peter shows us the impact of a transformed relationship with a risen Lord on our guilt. Guilt is natural, just like doubt, just like grief. Guilt is good. Guilt is the alarm that we aren't right and we need God. God doesn't ask us to be numb to it. He wants us to feel it. But the resurrection redefines guilt in light of a new reality, one of grace so strong it beats sin and death. You know, Colossians 1, verses 21 through 23 says, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you have heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. You know, it says in Colossians 1.23, it, it doesn't read that you'll be straight if you don't fail. It reads you'll be straight if you continue. See, the enemy loves extremes. You know, one sacrifice, one good act, and we're good. I got high morals, I'm straight. He loves the opposite side of that coin where one good mistake and you're disqualified completely. You know, when I was young, we had a game called Shoots and Ladders. How many of you guys have ever played Shoots and Ladders, right? You roll the dice, the board has ladders and the boards have shoots. And when you land on shoots, they send you far backwards, sometimes all the way to the very beginning. And life is a lot like a ladder. Every day is another rung. Every day as you pursue God, it's another rung. And yet sometimes we stumble. And the enemy would love for us to think of that as a shoot, that every time we fail, we go all the way back to the beginning. If you live long enough with this perspective, you'll end up hopeless. Following Christ is impossible. Living his plans unobtainable when we become blind to our true progress. But one mistake doesn't erase grace. Fail forward. Fall forward. Let your guilt lead you to God and his grace. Have gutsy guilt that won't hesitate to cross through confession and embrace grace again. Colossians 1 speaks of hope held out. It's held out to us. Lay hold of it again. But Satan, even when we've confessed sin, loves to hold out guilt, loves to hold out shame. Peter lived in an agricultural society. I can't even say the word because we don't live in an agricultural society. When's the last time you heard a rooster crow? Last time for me was the last time we're in the DR. Probably won't hear a rooster crow again for a while. But Peter lived in an agricultural society. He would have heard it again and again. And again, what do you think his emotion would have been? Fresh guilt, fresh shame. But Jesus finds Peter after his resurrection. When? Early in the morning. Why is the morning significant? Because it's when roosters would have been crowing. Jesus was reconditioning Peter to think of his grace when he repeatedly heard the roosters crow. To realize, like David did in Psalm 23, that guilt doesn't have to follow me all the days of my life because goodness and grace and mercy do. Grace and mercy are like my bodyguards against the guilt and shame that want to follow me all the days of my life. But you know, when I think of Peter's restoration, my heart just hurts for Judas. What would have happened if he would have hung out until after the resurrection? What would have happened? Wouldn't Jesus have found him as well? Couldn't he have restored him as well? I know scripture says many different things about Judas, but I'm never going to place anyone outside of the grace of God. Isaiah says the arm of the Lord is not too short to save. And I love in Acts 9-11, when Ananias is sent to minister to Paul, who is Saul at the moment, will become Paul. I know it's confusing. But when he gets sent to minister to who I'm going to call Paul, it says he was shook. So much so that he questioned God because Paul had been murdering God's people left and right, throwing them in prison, 
It's like if God asked you to go minister to the leader of ISIS. You'd be like, are you sure? You sure about this? And where was Paul? It says in Acts 9-11, he was in the house of Judas. Now, that was a common name, but I don't treat that as a common detail to a sovereign God. God was looking for someone as far gone as Judas, steeped in sin, rejection of Christ to prove the infinite reach of his grace. That it reaches the seemingly unreachable and it can always reach you. Isaiah says the arm of God is not too short to save, but the enemy loves to take guilt and shrink our view of the arm of God. Give him T-Rex arms <laughs> to make you feel too far gone and rob you of every radical dream you ever had. The enemy uses guilt to shrink your dreams, shrink your relationships, shrink the breadth of your life. Not always to the point of suicide like Judas, but often for safer options and smaller dreams. Grace sparks the opposite. Big dreams, big relationships, and a big life. Peter went on and took the grace and another chance. And he went on to see revival of thousands and thousands that he helped spark, leading people that would change the world. And he didn't crumble when given a chance to deny Christ again. He went all the way to a cross, just like Christ did for following Jesus. You know what you give up? When you give up on yourself because you think God's given up on you is incredibly significant. Never let your faith fail simply because you did. Jesus beat the grave and conquered death to give us a grace that never fails. So if you're here tonight and your faith feels weak because of guilt that you've been carrying, things you've done, maybe even shame from things that people have done to you, come on, I want to just have another moment just to pray for you tonight. He wants to meet with you just like he met with Peter. Recondition your heart to one that remembers grace again and again. So if we could bow our heads, close our eyes. That's you here tonight. You struggle with guilt. Knowing that you're past that, God's forgiven it, but it still follows you. And come on, just raise your hand where you are. I want to pray for you tonight. Lord God, I thank you. We thank you for Jesus. <laughs> we thank you that Jesus beat sin in the grave. We don't have to stay in sin and guilt. We thank you for the free gift of grace. God, help us to pursue holiness. God, help us to know what to do, when to fail, to hear the, the guilt and return to you again, to receive grace, grace that doesn't just cover up sin but empowers us to walk away from it. Help us never to shrink your arms that are never too short to save. God, help us to be Peter's, not Judas, to never concede but to find the power of confession and the grace it uncovers. God, help us to never let guilt shrink your dreams for us. God, let the power that, that's in the, the resurrection that lives in us, the grace that we're given, empower us to do the work you've prepared for us, God. Help us to remember that goodness and mercy follow us all the days of our lives, in every season. Seasons of grief, seasons of doubt, seasons of guilt. We thank you for Jesus, in Jesus' name, amen. So as we begin to wrap up tonight, if I could just ask the worship team to come up. You know, let's talk about fingerprints and your brain and how it, it determines your fingerprints. Obviously, again, my fingerprints don't sh change as I get older. They're, they're just there. But your brain, right, develops. It, it's not just locked in. And the two things that can change the way your brain functions is experiences and exposure. It's what affects our brains even after our fingerprints have been set. And I don't know what experiences you've had in your life. I don't know what you've been exposed to in your life. I don't know your struggle tonight. But I know that God knows. A God that's infinitely powerful and profoundly intimate. That in our messy middle, 
in the Saturday that we live in spiritually, that he's with us. Again, Jesus spent Saturday in the grave so that we didn't have to spend our Saturdays alone. But maybe you're here tonight and you know of God like you know of Martin Luther King Jr. or any of these people I've quoted tonight. You know him, but you don't really know him, right? You know what he said, but he can't do anything for you in the moment. Or you know how he shaped history, but you've never let him shape your life. Come on, Jesus has every intention of meeting you where you're at, but he has no intention of leaving you the way he found you. God isn't just infinitely powerful. He wants to be profoundly intimate to you and to me and to every person in this room. Jesus isn't just some God who did his work and then sits back. He rose, revisited his followers in their seasons of grief, their seasons of doubt, and their seasons of guilt, showing that he would never forsake us. No matter the place or season we stand in, no matter what our Saturday looks like. So come on, let's rise to our feet tonight. Let's press in in prayer to the, the Savior who pressed in to redeem us. So even while we were still sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. Jesus, there's so many reasons to worship you, to praise you. You open up the possibility of eternal life. You open up grace to cover our sin and help us out of it. You give us hope. You give us peace in every season. God, we want to praise you not just tonight, but with our lives. And I would encourage you. We're going to go into worship. But if that's you tonight, you're in any of those places, you need more prayer. We got leaders that are here to pray for you. If that's you here tonight, you know of Jesus, but you don't know Jesus. You've never made him Lord. Come on, I want to pray for you tonight. But come on, let's go into worship tonight. Let's worship our Savior. Let's worship our King that's redeemed us.